Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gayatri. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Hi Rinka, welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. It has been a long time since we connected. For the benefit of our listeners also, we start with your own self-introduction. I guess you can do it much better than whatever I knew you were doing. Hi Shiv. So myself, um, I have about uh, 35 odd years of experience in the software industry. And they've done all kinds of stuff, uh, worked for large organizations, small startups, I've done, uh, this is my second journey in startups. Apart from that, that was my day job. Night job has been other stuff also. So we created Spin Bangalore together. And I think we did a nice job about that. That was uh, pretty nice. You see. And I enjoyed doing it, working with people, you know, completely outside uh, the regular job. So uh, a bit of background on me, my basic background has been uh, obviously in software. I think it's been primarily in the operating systems and the protocols, uh, networking protocols in the embedded space. And I've worked in companies like Novell, Future Software, which is now Arison, places like that. And uh, we did a startup in 2005, which I, uh, 2000. Yeah, came out of that and uh, then went back again into the startup field in 2012. So, um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I think uh, first when I met you, it was during the initial B-Spin days. Yes. One question that has always kind of intrigued me mm-hmm. is that when we talk about any process or structure or when you mentioned protocols, People who have been working with operating systems or closer to the silicon mm-hmm. are more used to. Right. But when it comes to application development in the large, for instance, why did you or how did you get interested in the concept of something like spin? Okay, that was a very interesting journey. Actually, uh, what happened was in my first job, that was in Delhi, it was a small company, IBM company. They decided to implement quality and uh, me, I was just this uh, rookie software engineer and uh, it kind of made sense to me in the sense uh, we do a lot of development but it is all, uh, it's more of an art, you know, you splatter the color and you don't know what you're going to get and that was one of the core reasons why you don't know whether a project's going to succeed or what's going to happen and you don't want to get a little more control on it. So those days it was more like, okay, what works, what doesn't work? Can we collect that and make uh, things work better? Start from there. And yes, of course, being, how shall I say, under the hood or, you know, away from the user's eye in the operating system space or the protocol space, it is very important to be structured and to be very, very clear how you're going to exchange information, how you're going to work and what's going to work, what's not going to work. I think that all came together for me and uh, 
because see one of the things is when you have a computer and those days computers were not as stable as they have gotten today uh, you do want stability right and especially if you are a router or a switch somewhere out in the internet you don't want to lose packets and you don't want to you want your connection to be stable and it is only then you can run these long lasting applications on top the switch or the router has to disappear and to do that it has to be stable and to do that in the quality has to be very high i think that was one of the big triggers for me and so quality had been a lifetime journey also you know kind of related to that was in future software I'd acted as a quality manager and the one thing i realized quality is really about collecting the best practices of an organization and making sure everybody uses those best practices if you don't then you'll have varying levels of quality varying levels of trust so you need to do that and so the next step was obviously can we collect those practices across organizations which is what the quality systems were about so there are two parts to it one is of course uh, having collected them rolling them out and the second is learning new practices and trying to roll those out and which is kind of uh, part of uh, what i've been trying to say to people that we need to start quote and quote inventing new processes or discovering new processes so for example uh, agile agile was discovered by some people and so now it's become mainstream but uh, Yeah, there was a time when we, people would look at agile. Oh, do we want to do this? What is this? So yeah, I think all those have been part of the journey that I've made, and which is where I thought Spin was a great way to you know collect uh, knowledge and also share out the knowledge. So that is how Spin happened for me. Uh, that's very interesting. In fact, I'd like to pick on one thing that you mentioned in the context of routers. You said stable connections. I'm just transposing that to something that B Spin was able to do, which is to establish stable connections across organizations. at least in the bangalore ecosystem since you were initially probably doing a lot of evangelizing and then getting everyone to rally around the concept of sharing benchmarking learning together and all that how was that experience oh, okay that was brilliant actually i remember the first time i really started on that whole benchmarking thing you know uh, robert camp's uh, book on benchmarking and uh, my thought was about uh, discovering new processes or at least bringing processes from outside in and uh, i first talked about it within the spin group and uh, the co group was like uh, okay let's look at doing that but now how do we do it i'm not sure how to do it and i remember then reaching out to a couple of seniors in the industry i reached out to sarla ravishankar Motorola and she says yeah if you're doing it i will get my quality guy to attend and then i reached out to philips that was nagraj and sn sn said yes we will get our people also into this and of course there was shri there was indrade pal and there were a bunch of other guys who said yes and i remember i said wow i mean people are saying they want to do this when uh, why would you want to share data i mean data is like uh, my personal property for every organization kind of thing but I, we actually managed to get people into a room maybe seven eight guys and you know everyone was like uh, a cat on hot bricks you know tentatively walking around each other and so whole discussion started okay how do we share data how do we protect each other and stuff like that and i think the first two three meetings went in the first okay we need to have a legal agreement and so we wrote up something they took it back to their legal and then there's a whole this thing you know legal giving inputs and it all getting rehashed and i think that log jam was broken by shrishela one day he came in he says okay it stop and he put up the data of something like 40 projects up there and that broke the log jam 
and people started sharing. And I think the first decision was, you know, take the easy part, which was, okay, can we benchmark across each other and figure out uh, how Bangalore is doing? So then we started having numbers like, okay, we do five lock a day development and, you know, things like that. So then that becomes a standard way of, for, for project managers to predict what the project is going to be like. How many defects, how many locks per day, how long does it take to write specific documents, things like that. So I think that's how the benchmarking thing started really. It was, a, how shall I say, it was brilliant. It was totally brilliant experience. Yeah, we always say that you know, software is a team sport. So getting everyone together to a common objective, that too, from different organizations having different ways of working, I think was definitely a major breakthrough in terms of how the community started forming and learning. Right. Now, extending that, have you been able to use any of these concepts that worked across companies within organizations that you were part of? I think the biggest, and I would say the biggest global movement of uh, this has been the open source uh, community. If you look at what Linux has done, the whole uh, G, uh, the open source community itself. Basically, in the early days, what would happen is everyone would own chunks and components and stuff like that. And, you know, everyone would develop and own their own IP. But then we got to the point where it made a lot of sense to start using open source uh, components, if you will. And I remember in uh, well, when we first started uh, looking at the open source uh, movement, it was pretty jaundiced. Eye. I mean, if I open my, if I integrate uh, an open source component, then my, I have to release my code and that becomes a little dangerous. I think that uh, movement uh, actually took off. I think there was a recession and people realized that, oh God, we can't and we need to move to Linux and we need to do it faster. And uh, so one of the things, I was working on this LDAP project, I novel that was called eDirectory. One of the decisions was to port LDAP to Linux and I was the lead on that. And when we started porting LDAP, now LDAP, on, I mean, eDirectory on uh, NetWare was one of the most scalable and most stable LDAPs in the world actually at that time. And uh, so we decided to port it to Linux. And uh, so the first question was, okay, there are so many other components that it integrates with. What do we do? How do we use it? And so we made a decision that we would use uh, the Linux components as much as possible instead of using the components that we had developed inside Novel for NetWare. And with the result, the port was actually pretty fast. We released uh, the whole LDAP release that goes on the NetWare uh, CD that included a Linux component and that was released in six months. That, I mean, normally an effort like this would have taken us a couple of years, but because we use a lot of the open source components, we were able to do it much, much faster. And of course, a lot of our customers liked it and they started using uh, eDirectory on Linux almost from the day one. We found quite a few pilots and customers for that. That's interesting because one of the biggest challenges that most teams face or when there are multiple teams within an organization is uh, what we call as this NIH or the not invented here syndrome. So what tricks did you use or how were you able to get a larger group to accept using code that was written by somebody let's, else? Let's be let's be brutally honest about this. The NIH syndrome cannot be broken. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't break the NIH syndrome because I am invested in my product and you, if you dare touch my product, I will kill you. Okay, so the only way to break the NIH syndrome is if there is a pressure from outside. 
significant pressure from outside. In the case of uh, e-directory, what happened was uh, there was a major recession and uh, Novell had to release uh, a low-cost e-directory on other platforms. And the only way it could have done that on Linux is by actually putting it there. And if they would have tried to rewrite all the components of uh, the, uh, the network on Linux, it would have taken way too long and they had to get it out very quickly in the market. So there was an external pressure. I'll give you a couple more examples. IBM, I had worked in IBM. So what had happened was, uh, this was for, I won't name the company we were working for, but uh, this was a very, is a very, very large telecom company in IBM, in US, one of the largest. I won't name it, of course. Uh, the One of the things that IBM owned was, uh, it owned a defect tracking system that the company would use to log defects, track defects, and so on and so forth. Okay. And for this, the IBM had a team of 300 people maintaining that defect tracking system. The question was that, why won't we use an open source defect tracking system? There you go. I mean, you immediately eliminate 300 people and you cut costs accordingly. But neither the company was invested, nor was IBM invested because... Uh, IBM obviously wasn't because it was putting up 300 people, but uh, the other company, no, 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 no. Uh, this has been uh, customized for our needs. But then again, there was uh, extensive need to cut uh, headcounts. And there was, uh, see, each line of code has a certain number of defects. So there was a need to cut defects. How do you cut defects? You, you cut it by one very quick way is by integrating a stable component. So you take an open source uh, stable defect tracking system, modify that, or at least file defects to modify that to suit your needs and integrate that. Well, you've cut out 300 people. That's, that's the other thing. The, I think I learned this in Novell when I was doing IPv6. IPv6 is the next generation IP that now goes on Novell Netware. We wrote up IPv6, very stable, and we went to every product manager and we said that, hey, integrate it into your product. And Novell has many products. And they would all look at it, yeah, wonderful, great job. I think you guys have done a brilliant job and it's as good as a TCP IP. I won't put IPv6 and TCP IP there. So they said, that, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll put it on our roadmap, you know, things like that. But nothing would move. I think it was 2003 when the DOD, US DOD, actually the US Navy reached out to Novell and said, what is your IPv6 roadmap? Our next generation systems will all have IPv6. Suddenly in one day, I had every product manager send me a mail asking for a call. Hey, can we start working on integrating IPv6 like this? So you are not going to make any change if the pressure is from inside. Everybody's invested in the current system. It has to come from outside and break the system. So you have to figure out a way which breaks the system from outside, not from inside. It will never work from inside. Incidentally, this is why companies get disrupted. Mm, that's an interesting thought, right? creating disruption from outside. It has to come from outside. It is only when you're dying that you're willing to take chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. It's painful. It's intensely painful. But the, uh, but the bigger pain is you'll die. Mm. Right? Yeah. So two more questions around the open source theme that came up. Hmm. Was that the culture, at least of acceptance of open source components has definitely now grown. And then a lot of people are using it. Hmm. To the extent some people say, I only want open source. I want something that is free. Right. How do we make sure that the open source 
movement thrives by making more people contribute something back so i think there are two three uh, there are two three trades here Shiva, I don't remember uh, if you remember the discussion you and I had, and this was like in 2001. I still remember that discussion, and it was around uh, those days. Open source was not very stable, and uh, you had asked, "So why would one use open source?" And I said, "Because it's cheaper, it's free." And he says, "Why would you?" So uh, I mean, essentially, what it was that uh, what makes it valuable is you can have multiple people. come up with multiple similar components and you can pick and choose and so what open source does is gives you a alternative to the closed source and so the closed source now has to hustle and offer so much more value which is becoming more and more difficult because people do migrate to open source now the uh, the trend the trends that are happening in open source are really uh, if you look at some of the new companies they do they go to market as open source and then they have a premium component we doing the same as part of our startup so we we are in the we focus on analytics and uh, short and sweet basically we are uh, at the intersection of uh, supercomputing and big data and uh, so what we are going to do for example is come up with an open source component that we put it out there and integrate with other open source products so it adds value to the open source product and so it, uh, because uh, what we are doing will make uh, so for example we work with lucene which is a search engine uh, if we can make lucene run much faster then we expect and this is the model that all the new sql databases have taken we expect a lot of people to start using this accelerated version of lucene and so then they'll come back to us hey we've got this defect fix it for us and so we'll fix it for them as long as it uh, helps everyone but if they say okay we want a certain sla we say okay pay us for the sla and so that is one way of making money in open source by getting uh, maintenance contracts and the other one is it say that okay you have this accelerated version but we use now um 10 cards in parallel on a large machine and we give you a version that is at least 20 times faster than the one that you're using currently do you want it because that 20 times faster means they're cutting out maybe another 10 machines that will do search right uh, without compromising on speed so it's okay we're saving so much we don't mind giving you 50% of that so then that becomes a road map to premium uh, revenues and this is why if you look at uh, ibm ibm bought red hat it was i think 16 billion dollars and that's the reason they bought red hat because uh, it allows uh, quick penetration into uh, markets where people can't afford much but as people you know get uh, more and more used to it and they need more stability then they're willing to pay for it and that is where the money comes If you see a lot of the formal, quote unquote, formal efforts that are going into open source, they are all driven by companies: Red Hat, IBM, Novell. You know, apart from the other companies like Ubuntu, etc. So this allows for um, a huge amount of work going into open source. The second part is you have the chutku chutku guys. You know, the small guys, people like me, who want to make an entry. and uh, if i try to go and sell the pr- first question i'll get asked is okay how do i know you're going to be there and if i'm open source i'll say hey the code is there out there on github 
if I'm gone, the code is still there on GitHub. The second part is now GitHub has become the resume for developers. So if I want to go hire someone, first thing I'll ask him is, okay, give me your GitHub. Let me take a look at what code you put out there. So now people try to contribute to open source in order to, you know, build a resume for themselves. And oh, by the way, if they find an interesting problem that might actually translate into their doing a open source component or even an open source startup. So there's a lot of, uh, how shall I say, churn or manthan that is happening underneath that bubbles up into people contributing and uh, small startups starting as well as large companies contributing and you know the whole ecosystem enriches around it and this is something that the closed source companies are finding more and more difficult to challenge because you do something there will always be some guy in the open source who'll go and do something similar right and then what do you do yeah. your uh, the value you bring keeps reducing as a comparison to the other guy. Okay. Now, this actually also leads me to the second question that I had, which is also one of the topics that you're passionate about. We, we've talked about it also in the past, about new ways of software development. Right? Ah. Now, in the context of open source, there is a common protocol. There are multiple contributors. When you want somebody to review, it's not only about uh, what you write. It is also about how you write whether the code is stable, whether it is uh, secure, whether it is uh, high performant, efficient, and all that. Now, when a change needs to happen or change happens in terms of how software is developed, would that make it difficult for the open source movement? Because unless every contributor understands the new protocol or the new ways of development, would it still be as effective? Actually, yes. And uh, it is not the contributor needs to understand it completely the whole thing is driven around the review of uh, the code submitted or the patch submitted see what happens is uh, the whole thing is driven around the review process uh, if you try to implement this kind of a review process in a closed source system it will become horrendously expensive and very slow but uh, in an open source the cost is zero so there is no cost and that is why so uh, let's say i submit a, uh, let's say i'm a, not a newbie uh, contributor I've, I've submitted a few patches and so on and so forth I've taken the defect i fixed it and i submit a patch now the act of submitting a patch has got two three things the first is actually taking the defect, telling everyone, hey, I'm taking this defect. The second part is saying, okay, this is how I plan to fix a defect. Now you have multiple people commenting on how I plan to fix a defect and look at it as points of view. So one guy will bring the software point of view. Second guy will bring a usability point of view. The third guy will look at it and say, hey, from a cybersecurity perspective, you need to consider the following things. The fourth guy will say, okay, from a performance perspective, you need to look at the following things. Fifth guy will say, okay, reliability, the following things. Now, if you see, these are all points of view that are being contributed, right? Obviously, it will yeah. take time to contribute this. So, it is not something that I will get inputs in a day or two. It might take a couple of days, maybe a week to get collect these inputs. So, first of all, what happens here is as I get these points of view, I'm enriched. I'm significantly enriched. I'm far more enriched than I would be in a closed source company. Right? Okay. Uh, because first of all, there may not exist such people in a closed source company. I mean, people won't have the, I mean, the organization will not have the money to fund such people. First of all, right. secondly, even if they did look at the amount of time needed to do this. Okay. So now I make the fix, I test it and I release the patch. There's a, every, uh, application or component has got its own way of releasing the patch and they usually publish the process now, as they release the patch 
all these people with various points of views they look at it and they comment on the patch and then the guy goes back fixes all those comments and then releases it again and only then after everyone has accepted it gets rolled in now if you see what is happening the whole release process here is much much slower than what would happen in a closed source company but the quality is much higher okay right and with the net result over time the quality of the open source component actually keeps on growing and one mm. more thing that can happen and does happen in the open source component is the what is known as the refactoring um, overhead at some point you know when the code gets too unwieldy somebody decides okay this is looking really awful we need to clean this out and he says okay i'm going to refactor the code and so then they go and refactor the code and submit it okay imagine doing a refactoring of a large application in a company software company they will say hey boss refactoring it's expensive zero value and no company is going to pay us for it it is simply a cost for us let's not do it right so the code keeps deteriorating with time mm. that is not the case in open source it keeps renewing okay right and and by the way uh, this whole process uh, is a mechanism of accepting the quote unquote right not accepting is the wrong word getting the right kind of people in because you need to have the patience to go through this and the pay, people who come in become much much better programmers uh, architects than you would have in a closed source company in fact i think some of the best global architects i've met are all open source contributors wow yeah interesting isn't it yeah yeah i'll come back to this as we close i have a favorite question but before that since you also mentioned that you work in the intersection of open source and huge large volumes of data how do you think the open data movement is progressing uh, so i i will approach this uh, question from two perspectives and that is also related to your question about the software uh, word trends in the software industry so there are couple of things that are happening today uh, let me enumerate these trends first we know that the moore's law has come to a halt okay. and the reason it has come to a halt is a couple of things number one you can't shrink silicon very much further right i mean we've kind of reached limits there okay. that is one part the second part is you can't clock it faster now as you clock uh, silicon faster clock cycles faster more heat is generated and with the uh, finer uh, silicon there's a good chance that you will actually burn your silicon so you can't really yeah. clock it faster mm -hmm. okay there are answers in the sense you can use nitrogen cooling and uh, academic tests have shown you can go up to 7 gigahertz on with uh, nitrogen cooling but you can't really do nitrogen cooling in a data center so okay. uh, i think the limits there is uh, kind of like 3 gigahertz kind of thing and still the heat generated is massive so that is one part now if you look at any computing environment from a infrastructure and a big data perspective I, i i will take two three perspective one is from infrastructure and the second is from a big data and the open data perspective i won't go to the open data so much as i will go to the big data because uh, big data is both open and closed data so one is this problem with silicon the second problem that we are having is uh, we know that uh, data uh, or other networks are scaling but they are not scaling fast enough they this kind of scaling so ethernet we know will continue into the future and will continue to scale but there is a limit to how much ethernet will scale and so the network fabric will also become a limitation in the future and the third problem is of course the storage getting the data out of uh, the disk or the nvram or whatever into okay. the cpu to crunch it and put it back okay now this is from the infrastructure perspective 
Now, if I take an orthogonal perspective to this, if I look at big data, now there was this very interesting study that year on year EMC has uh, sponsored with IDC, IDC EMC. Uh, you can Google that actually. That talks about data growing from uh, it was around I think uh, ten or twelve terabytes in uh, twenty ten to around forty four exabytes in uh, twenty twenty. It is it is an exponential growth actually. So the problem here is a couple actually. Now that you are having exponential growth of data, uh, the only way to handle this is if you take a chunk of uh, network storage and compute, a chunk can handle just so much data at a time. Now, if you're having exponential growth of data, the only way you can do it is by increasing the sizes of your uh, clusters. Uh, about two years ago, I talked to somebody in uh, Oracle and they were talking of uh, 100,000 machine clusters becoming common, pretty common. Mm. And that was two years ago. And with exponential growth, I would expect that to double. Okay. And that is a limit. So one of the biggest issues that data centers have today is evacuation of heat, which is why one of the things that a lot of data centers are doing is they're moving to uh, places like Iceland or they're burying it underwater. Mm. So that heat evacuation becomes uh, not such a huge problem, right? Because you need huge amount of power to first of all air condition it and then evacuate the heat. Data centers have started consuming power in megawatts. And it's right. now going into multiple megawatts of power. And as we move into the exascale computing, one of the reasons that exascale is such a huge problem is that setting up such a supercomputer or a data center, if you will, these are now span multiple acres. And I'm talking of Google kind of data center. Why is this okay. important? As data grows, we will need such data centers to handle the data, right? And they're going to become pretty important, critical. In fact, now data centers, the power consumption is now something like two to three percent of the global power output. Is like, and it's growing. Okay, it's growing significantly. So what do you do? See, okay, so that is one perspective, one facet of the problem. The second facet of the problem is if you look at computing from the dawn of computing, computing is being sequential, and that has been primarily because in the early days, most of the applications, especially in the commercial space, were MIS kind of applications. So you know, HR, whatever, billing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, was sequential. Now, what would happen is, what does that mean? Is you take a piece of data load it into the register, process it, re uh, remove it, put the next one and process it. This is fine when the data sizes are not very large. But okay. as the data sizes explode, the time to process is a function of how fast you can load it, process it and return it. Which means that time to process also keeps on increasing exponentially. And so the only answer to that is to throw multiple machines at it and chunk the data. And this is the a crude form of parallelism, if you will. And this is where the Hadoop and the Storm and uh, uh, Apache multiple, if you will, have yeah. come in. Now, what is happening, if you look at the data that is being generated, uh, we categorize this data into three types, actually. The first is the traditional uh, sequential data which uh, is more like, uh, which is actually, if you see, is a business process is a very good example. It flows through various applications and is handled individually and uh, is sequential. It has to follow that sequence. Otherwise, the business process is broken. The second form of data is something that is orthogonal to these applications. 
It comes out of the log file of these applications. It comes out of sensors. And these are all panel data in the sense that data are not related to each other, except maybe in terms of time or temporarily. And you can actually process them together. I mean, in parallel. So if you look at it from this perspective, I can take chunks of this data and if I process them in parallel on different machines and then pull the answers together, then I would be able to process them much faster. What we do is uh, we use parallel elements on a single machine. So these are what are called general purpose GPUs. Okay. These are used extensively in the supercomputing environments. So what happens is like, I, like I talked before that now you can have one chunk of uh, compute uh, network and storage that do a certain amount of processing. But if you can do parallel processing inside that the compute log jam is broken. And if you can pull it all together in as uh, you know, on one machine, then the disk acts as your storage. And uh, so all you have to do is to move stuff from the disk into the GPU, process it there and return the results. So which means the level of compute that you're doing is much, much faster. Now, the other side, this, I talked about this IDC EMC curve, right? Today, uh, I think around 10 to 15% of that data that is created is the uh, sequential data. The rest of it is parallel data. And okay. we're using sequential machines to actually process this parallel data. Mm. Right? So if we use parallel machines to process this parallel data, then amount of machines needed, the amount of compute, storage, etc. need storage would not go down, but the compute and network would definitely crash. So okay. uh, to give you an example, my competition, they are doing parallel databases. And they claim uh, something like, 2000 times speed up over a sequential database, such as you know MySQL or Oracle and so on and so forth. So as a tech demonstrator, I wrote a proto database, if you will, that would read data and run a, uh, run a SQL query on it. Now I took an open source database available on the net, some 28 million records, loaded yeah. that on uh, MySQL and uh, I loaded the same data on my proto database and I ran a query on it. My proto database, which used a very old parallel uh, GPU, very, very old, it's obsolete, completely obsolete. It has around 192 CPUs, ran about uh, 100 times faster than the MySQL database. Okay, the new GPUs, the high-end GPUs, which by the way, don't cost very much. Uh, the high-end GPUs are like two or three lakhs are would have allowed me to run this at least three to four thousand times faster than my skill. Wow. Right. So the thing is, we need to look at uh, the whole paradigm of how we do uh, software development and how we do compute. We need to start thinking parallel. And this is a major, major issue because if you look at uh, how we are educated, how we are taught, right from the first Hello World program we wrote, everything is sequential. I mean, Shiv, how many yeah. people do you know uh, have written uh, multi-threaded applications in the application space? I bet not one is multi-threaded. Or if they are, they will be just two or three in your entire experience. Yeah, actually, interesting, probably interesting trivia is uh, when uh, I started my career as part of the initial induction training, we were asked to write something like this. Where you spawn off processes, I mean, everything will come and then there is one mother process that will generate a token. And then the the children are supposed to be waiting for that. And then as soon as they got one, they'll say, I ate a cookie or I got a cookie, cookie, something right. like that. Right. 
And then uh, that also turned out to be a little uh, bit of a challenge for me in the sense on uh, one of the first assignments, there was something that uh, had to be done about optimizing the printer. Right. Where, you know, multiple applications were printing and I said, okay, let me just use this, right. uh, this concept. <laughs> but then the first time the program ran, it crashed the system. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you have to worry and about these conditions, yeah. connecting each other's thing. Right, because what worked in a small, maybe test or a, a learning application, and then when you put it in production, running on two different machines, everything racing for a common resource, okay, then I slowly learned how one has to you know, coordinate this and so on. But yeah, yes, it's definitely uh, interesting and it can make things much simpler, but uh, a little challenging. Look at it this way. Now, you wrote this program for a CPU that had maybe two cores. So you would be able to run maybe two threads or is it hyper-threaded, maybe four threads in parallel, right? What if you had a CPU that had 7,000 cores? Mm, I can't imagine that. Yeah, so that is where compute needs to go. And so we know, we know a couple of things. We know that uh, the mainstream programmer can't do this, will not be able to do this, he is not educated. So what we're doing is we believe that we need to come up with uh, key components that actually parallelize. The programmer just integrates those library components of libraries and then uh, offloads his work to that. It is slow work. It is very slow work. And debugging something like this, as you discovered, is very painful. In a, on a CPU, what would take like 15 minutes to fix a bug takes about two weeks on this. Mm. But, but if we don't do this, pretty soon we'll get to the point we will have what I call dark data. Data we can't process simply because we don't have the compute capability. I mean, you throw 200,000 machines at it, 300,000 machines at it. And then what? And you still have more data you can't compute. What do yeah. you do? The only way out is to throw it away or not collect the data, mm. which is also not acceptable. Yeah. So would it be uh, fair to summarize that uh, the big data has opened up big challenges to explore, research and fix? I think the challenges are just coming. You're right. The challenges are just coming. And uh, yeah, uh, the answers, see, they are, uh, uh, the answers are temporary also. Because uh, I think the core of the problem here is, I believe, the whole uh, von Neumann's model, which is like a basic axiom on which all of computing is based, is broken actually. I know that's like throwing a pretty large bomb into the this thing, but I think we need to look at a completely different model and know that model is not uh, neural networks and things like that, but we need to look at a completely different model of uh, computing. Even parallel computing, as I'm talking about what the components do, each of the C CPU is a von Neumann CPU. So there is sequential computing there also. They are... Uh, I, and the problem is we don't have, uh, you know, all that stuff about uh, quantum computing and all that, that's way in the future. People are putting out stuff out there, but there's nobody I know who will deploy a quantum machine in his uh, say commercial network. First of all, no machine is uh, there. Secondly, there's no software. Third is how do you write code to it? How do you develop on it? There's a whole bunch of stuff that's not clear. So the problems have just begun really for us. Yeah, I think this would merit another conversation because today we are almost running close to the usual length that we maintain for an episode. Okay. But before we close, uh, there is one favorite question that I always ask most of my guests is what would be your advice 
to someone who's considering getting into IT or software or somebody who has just entered, uh, particularly in the context of, say, open source that we spoke about and people using that to enhance their credibility or their resumes by posting on GitHub and all that. What would be some things that somebody should know or should be ready for and actually do something about it? Right. So I'm going to be controversial. I always am. Uh, Please. First of all, don't go and join uh, Infosys or Wipro. Don't. You will be limited. Uh, what you should do is uh, identify, uh, if you really want to get into software, understand a couple of things. The days of the generalist are over. You become a generalist, you'll find a job, you'll grow for around five, six years, ten years, and then you'll be redundant and you'll have no way to go because your only route out will be to become a manager. And we have way too many managers. We don't have enough specialists. So your choice is really to become a specialist. Become a specialist. And the best way to become a specialist, find out what you like. When I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to get into protocols and embedded systems. And so everything I did was towards that. And I worked about 10 odd years in the protocol space, various kinds of protocols, embedded systems, and you know the RTOS, real-time operating systems kind of work. Uh, so as you become a specialist, you become more and more valuable. You will not have a fast growth, fair, but at least you will have a growth and you'll have a roadmap. And more importantly, you can contribute to this system. And the best way to contribute to this system is identify uh, an application that you like more than um, you know the logical like. It has got to be emotional attachment to it. And uh, go and start contributing to that open source system. Just keep contributing to it, learning from them, and uh, going from there. Over time, you will understand the problems and you'll be able to do your own component. This is really who you are in the software world. And this is what the good guys, the seriously good guys, the Googles, the Facebook look for when they go hiring. Once you do that, see, it doesn't have to be that you have to get hired by a Google or Facebook. You might just find a component that you can then spin off and uh, do a startup around, in which case you don't have to worry about a Google because you might end up being acquired by them. So I think this is a route a lot of the software engineers will have to take. And also, it is this that will slowly build your capabilities of understanding how this system fits into other systems and grow into being an architect. See, the one thing we are desperately short of in this world, in the software world, is having good or rather great global level architects. We have very few, very, very few. And then sadly, all of them are in the US. None of them are in India. Or very few are in India. What happens in India is everyone becomes a manager and they destroy their capability of uh, being able to design. Finally, I will leave you with one thought, what Bill Gates said. Don't beware, uh, beware of the nerd or he might be your boss one day. Mm -hmm. Yes, boss. <laughs> you no, as a nerd. But not that bad, I hope. <laughs> It's good, Rinka. I think there are a few more questions that are there, which will definitely be or making the next conversation more like a debate, particularly one that you are talking about in terms of becoming specialist and maybe super specialist versus everybody wants to be or everybody wants a full stack engineer nowadays. Right. And of course, a few things. So thanks a lot, Rinka. My it has been wonderful and a lot of new ideas to explore further. And as usual, you have your own point of view, which has been radical at times, but then they've always created the effect or been able to create an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a ton. It was a pleasure talking to you, Shiva, as always. I always enjoy talking to you. So it was good. Thank you.
thank you siddharth for composing the intro and outro music for this podcast if you like this episode please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network if you'd like to share your story contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com